Good morning, Grumlaw. Hey guys, my name is Jason Lowen. I have the privilege of serving here as your strategy pastor. Uh, and today, as, as Shay mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. You know, and there's actually churches all over this country and probably even around the world where you could walk into the service and get an actual branch from a palm tree. Uh, and, and maybe you're new to this whole church thing and you're like, why would I want one of those? Like that doesn't make any sense. Or maybe if you have kids that are anything like mine uh, and at the end of every church service, everything that they get from church ends up on the floor of your vehicle. And it's like, that'll just make a mess. Like you're probably glad that we're not gonna hand out palm branches. And, and seriously, like what's with, what's with those palm branches anyways? I, mean, I remember when, when I was a kid, I was from myself, and I was the oldest of four, so six of us, and I've been to like 34 Palm Sunday services, and you know, we, we would go there, we would get a palm branch when we walked into the main service, and then we would get another palm branch because we stayed for two services, went to like a Sunday school class, and we'd get a second one there, so like on the floor of my parents' minivan was always like half of a tree, and, and what we realized, my brother and I realized, is like these palm branches I mean, they're, they're basically useless. Like they don't make very good guns, right? I mean, like they're kind of like flimsy and I mean, you can't really like, so, and they, they don't make good swords for the same reason. But what my brother and I figured out is they make excellent whips, right? So like my brother's sitting on the other side of the minivan, you can't really get a good wind up, but man, you can still get a crack in there. And a 20 minute ride home, you know, we played that game that boys tend to play, like who's the biggest sissy, right? And so like, you know, like, he get a crack in, and then I oh, get a crack in, and then, and then oh, he gets one, and then I oh, get one. And uh, I mean, after 20 minutes, like it starts to hurt pretty bad. Um, we, uh, we went to church pretty much any, any time and every time that the doors were open. And, and on these Palm Sundays, you know, on a more serious note, most of what I remember from these Palm Sunday services was that there was this guy named Jesus who needed us to take our coats off, put them on the ground, and then cut branches off of the tree, put them on the ground. And this guy named Jesus would come walking or come riding down the road, riding on a donkey, walking on our coats and the palm branches. And I remember as a kid thinking like, if I was there, I'd be really concerned that Jesus might poop on my coat or that, that, that not Jesus, the donkey, <laughs> might poop on my coat. And, uh, and, and, and I'm like, Man, that's my only coat. Like what if he, so I thought that it would be a good idea this morning if we explored what Palm Sunday is really all about. And maybe, maybe just maybe, it'll add a bit of color to our experience, to our journey uh, in, in, this, in this spirituality, in this, this religious thing. And so whether, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, whether you're confident in where you stand with God, or maybe you're just beginning to explore uh, this whole religion, spirituality thing, I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited that this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna take a bit of time to explore the why behind it all. So this morning, uh, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna spend some time asking a lot of why questions. And, and may, maybe as I say that, you're thinking, oh my goodness, like, are you kidding me? My three-year-old does that all the time, right? And it's so annoying. Like, like it's time to go to bed. Why? Because you're three. Why? Well, because I'm the parent and I told you so. Why? Like, I mean, seriously, that can be really annoying. And I'm hoping I'm hoping that maybe this morning that won't be the case. I'm hoping and I'm pretty confident that as we explore these why questions, as we begin to look at like the why behind Palm Sunday, that it'll actually be helpful. That it'll actually give us a better understanding 
uh, or maybe even help us live better. I'm confident that as we explore the why behind Palm Sunday, that it will make our lives better and make us better at life. And so this morning, this morning, we're gonna take a look at a firsthand account of the events that lead up to the death of Jesus. And now, now no one in the historical community actually argues or debates about the existence of Jesus. You know, they, they argue about his teachings, they argue about his claims, they argue about his identity, but, but no one in the historical community argues about the existence of Jesus. It's, it's fact, Jesus existed. And now it's up to us to determine what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do about the claims that Jesus made? What are we gonna do about the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did? And this guy named Matthew, who spent nearly every day of Jesus' three and a half year ministry, uh, he wrote down for us some of the things that Jesus said and some of the things that Jesus did and some of the things you know, that he wrote down. And, and so I think that the question, the first question we're gonna look at is why Jesus? I think that's where we need to start, like why Jesus? And if you look at the account that Matthew wrote down, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. I mean, he, he knew that his death was coming and he predicted his own resurrection, that three days later he would rise from the dead. And then he pulled it off. And I don't know about you guys, like maybe if one of your friends like predicted their own resurrection, like you would probably listen to everything that they had to say for the rest of their life and for the rest, right? And you would probably write down everything that they said. So, and that's exactly what Matthew did. He, he saw the resurrected Jesus and wrote everything down for us. He, he actually risked his life for the teachings and the sayings of Jesus. He risked his life because Jesus rose, but he didn't just risk it, he actually gave his life because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, see after the resurrection, Matthew traveled from Jerusalem where they were all gathered and traveled, made his way all the way down to Ethiopia. And while he was there, he must have really made some people mad talking about the resurrection of Jesus because those people in Ethiopia told him, shut up, Matthew, stop talking about it. We don't care. We don't wanna know. Stop talking about this Jesus guy and what he did. But Matthew, because his life was changed forever, refused to stop talking about it. And so they stabbed him to death. And I'm convinced that Matthew was a smart enough guy that, that if, for whatever reason, if what Matthew, said, what Matthew was teaching, what Matthew saw was in fact false, if Matthew was making it up, he was a smart enough guy that when he, when he starts seeing those knives come out and they know they're not just playing around, like he would have backed off and been like, okay, like throw me in prison, like do it, don't kill me, right? I, I'm pretty sure you guys are smart enough to do the same thing, right? That they... That if you were telling a message, if you were proclaiming something, telling your friends and your coworkers something that was in fact false and you knew it, that when the heat started coming, you'd back off. But at the same time, knowing those of you who I do know in this room, I'm confident that we are a smart enough bunch that, that if we had experienced something like what Matthew did, someone who rose from the dead, our lives would be changed forever and we wouldn't stop talking about it. And that's exactly what happened to Matthew. Matthew knew what he saw and he was forever changed by it. So that's why Jesus. But, but what about Palm Sunday? Like why Palm Sunday? 
Well, I I am very glad that you asked. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And and maybe maybe uh, you don't exactly know where that is. And you have if you have a physical Bible, like you can open that up. You can follow along on the screens, or if you want, you can open up the YouVersion app on on your phone, and uh, you can just scroll past all of the books that you don't recognize, right? Like Hosea, Obadiah, Malachi, like you hardly recognize, well, maybe Malachi because it's Shay's son, but like the book, the names that you don't, scroll past all those, that's the history and the stories of Israel uh, and you're gonna get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the, that's the stories of the life of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 21, verses one through 11 says, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked and the crowds replied, it is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So, so as I mentioned, like I grew up going to church and I, I, this is like probably my 34th Palm Sunday. I've probably read this passage in Matthew like 40, 50, 60 times. Like, I mean, I've gone through this a whole bunch. And I mean, in full disclosure, like probably skimmed over this passage more times than I care to count. I mean, again, all that I really remember from growing up, even from reading this passage as an adult, was that this guy, Jesus, needed us to put our coats and cut the branches down. And uh, I never really looked much into it. And then Shay asked me to prepare this message. And I began looking at this passage with, with the, the, the eyes to question what's going on. And I tell you what, like, I have so many questions. And maybe if you're reading this or hearing this for the first time, you get some questions right on around in your mind. Uh, like, why did Jesus tell these guys to go and steal some random dude's donkeys? Like, are you serious? And then like, why did these guys go do it? Like, okay, all right, like, okay, who in their right mind, who in their right mind would give up their donkeys? Like, I mean, seriously, if someone comes knocking at your door, hey, um, I know you got a couple of nice cars in your garage. Can I have the keys? The Lord needs them. <laughs> like, right? Like, okay, get off my door. Like, get out of here. You got to be kidding me. Okay, and then how did the city already know? How did the city already know? Why, why were the crowds so excited? And then, and then why did the city care that the crowds were so excited that a guy was riding into the city on a donkey? Like, okay, so these are some of the questions that were rattling around in my mind as I was preparing for this message. And, and so let, let's, start, let's start with this question, why the donkey? And, and I think that as we explore this question, it will really help to have some of the answers to some of these other questions kind of help, help settle for us. I think we'll begin to have other things fall in line. So, so first of all, Jesus, 
He knew why he was here. He knew his purpose and he knew his mission. He knew why he was here on earth, which means he also knew that several hundred years earlier, there was a prophecy that the Messiah, the King, the Savior, the Redeemer would ride into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And so Jesus knew that that was about him. So he knew that, it, that in order to fulfill this prophecy, that he would have to come riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. But seriously, like lots of people, I mean, think about how many hundreds of years have passed since Zechariah first said that. How many, how many hundreds of people would have ridden into the city, I mean, uh, the city of Jerusalem on a donkey? Like hundreds, maybe thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe. I mean, that'd be like, me telling you guys, like 150 people first service, 150 people second service, uh, you know, probably over 100 kids, they all know. Maybe like you guys tell uh, another 100 people in the gym, like Barry Sanders is gonna be riding through Grand Blanc in a black Silverado at some point in the future. Right? Like, okay, so probably what would happen is the 500 of us that first heard that, that's not true. I, I, maybe he is, I don't know. Um, but the 500 of us that heard that would probably all get on a message thread on our phones, right? And we'd be like, okay, okay, who's gonna take the first shift on that corner? And we'd set it all up. And then like, I don't know, probably two weeks later, half of us would have left the message thread because like, this is ridiculous. Like we've looked at every single black Silverado that has ridden through Grand Blanc. He's not here yet. It's two weeks later. What's wrong with him? Like, okay. And then six months later, there would be like two guys, the two fanatics, right? Sitting in their lawn chairs with their beer hats on, right? With binoculars looking in the window of every single black Silverado. But I mean, seriously, at some point, the people of Jerusalem would have stopped checking every single guy that rode into the city on a donkey. They would have stopped. But, but that, I mean, that's what was going on. Jesus knew that it was so significant for him to ride into the city on a donkey. But like, why would the people have gotten so, like how would they have known? Why would the people have gotten so worked up about this? And I think before we can really answer and dive into that part of the story, we need to first understand some of the backstory. And so we're actually gonna go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna make a few references. But all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes this promise. God approaches this guy named Abraham and makes this promise to Abraham that, that through the descendants of Abraham, that this nation would, would, would come about, that the Jewish people, the Israelites, that through the descendants of Abraham, God would bless this nation and that the entire world would be blessed as a result of the Jewish people, as a result of the Israelites. And so the nation of Israel began to develop this incredible sense of national pride and rightfully so. I mean, this is an incredible promise. And so Abraham, many years later, had a son named Isaac. And then several years after that, Isaac had a son named Jacob. And then 11 generations later, this guy named David was born in the city of Bethlehem. And David became one of the most famous kings in all of Israel's history, King David. And then 28 generations later, in the same exact family line, this guy named Jesus was born. And here's the crazy thing. Throughout all of these 42 generations, the, these prophets and these leaders would rise to the surface and they would drop these hints all along, kind of like this breadcrumb, breadcrumb trail all along the way, dropping hints that God was gonna keep his promise. To, to bring the nation of Israel to this place of blessing the entire world. 
So all along the way, these prophets would write about this. These these prophets and these leaders, they, they would often rise to the surface and begin their political careers around the time when the nation of Israel was in exile. And and here's what I mean by this. That that over and over and over and over again, this would happen. So the nation of Israel, they they were given this like set of rules and expectations, kind of like a constitution, right? So as a nation, they would know how they were supposed to interact with each other and how they were supposed to interact with other nations. But over and over and over again, they would disobey, they would ignore, they would reject God and these expectations. And so God would send a foreign nation into Israel to bring this nation into captivity, into slavery, so that for the purpose of bringing this nation to a place of desperation, so that that this people, this nation of Israel, would cry out to God in such desperation that they needed him, they wanted him, they pleaded with God, rescue us, save us, bring us out of slavery. And every single time, God would come through. And, And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking like, this is a lot like our journey as parents. Like, okay, I have, I have a nine-year-old. He's my oldest. And so I haven't really had to do this with him. But, but I, I re- it wasn't too long ago that I was a teenager. And I remember my parents doing this with me. Like, giving me the same instruction over and over and over again. I mean, over the course of multiple years, having the same conversation, like a broken record, the same conversation, right? Over and over and over again. And I've heard some parents chuckling because you're probably right in the middle of doing this with your teenager, right? But, but kids, hear this. Your parents, we, we want what's best for you. As parents, we want what's best for you. We're not there to be like this, this great killjoy and like prevent you from having all kinds of fun. But we know, and I remember my dad saying this, adult decisions have adult consequences. And, and so there, there was times that when my siblings and I, and, and I, I, can, I guess I can only really speak for myself, there was times where I, w- I had the same conversation with my parents over and over and over again. And this is an example of one of those, right? Like curfew which I know if you're a teenager, you're 16, 17, 18 years old, you're like, seriously, curfews? Like, they're dumb. Um, But my parents had this curfew on us, this expectation of when we were supposed to be home, when we were supposed to be in the house. And they have the same conversations over, and I would wasn't always the perfect kid, and I'll just, you know, full disclosure, I broke those rules multiple times. Um, and, and, And there was a time, I remember, when my parents stopped having those conversations with me. And, 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 if I, if I didn't show up at school the next day and there was a test and I bombed the test or, or I was late for work again and got fired, my parents would not bail me out because adult decisions have adult consequences. And this is the same sort of thing that God was doing with the nation of Israel after years and years and years sometimes like hundreds of years of being reminded of these expectations, these guidelines, of continually ignoring them and breaking them and disobeying God, that that God would send uh, this foreign nation, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans, to come in to, to put the people of Israel in slavery so that for the purpose of bringing this nation to a place where they so desperately wanted God to save them, to free them, to redeem them. And so all along the way, the role of the prophet and the leader would, would be to, to enter into this scene, to, that God would raise them up during this period of exile. 
And he would write about, he would remind the nation of Israel about, about God's faithfulness, about his promises. That, that promise, all the way back from Genesis chapter 12, it was still true that God loved them. It was the role of the prophet and the leader to remind the nation about God's promises and his faithfulness. And most of the time, when these prophets and these leaders would write about God's faithfulness, when they would write to the nation of Israel, most of the time, what they were writing about was about their present circumstances, whether it was the Babylonian oppression or whatever else it may have been in that moment. Most of the time he was writing about that. But sometimes, sometimes what they wrote about had greater significance than just their present circumstances. Sometimes what they wrote about was a reference to a prophecy about the fact that God was going to raise someone up who would free them, not just from their present circumstances, although he would do that, but that he would bring about salvation, freedom, redemption for them and the whole world, bringing them as a nation to that place of prominence that, that God had promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Okay, so that's a bit of the backstory that brings us to this story. Because in this moment, in this story, the nation of Israel, these people, they're in one of those cycles of oppression, of years and years and years of ignoring God's instruction and, 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 and being disobedient. And so God had raised up the Romans to enslave the people of Israel. And so they were living in the Roman Empire. And, and, and the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, they hated the Romans. They so desperately wanted out. And so for them, all of these prophecies from the last thousand years were so incredibly relevant. I mean, for them, it was like, do you guys remember when great grandpa, when he talked about the days of Jeremiah and the stories that he told? And then grandpa would tell those stories around the campfire. And dad, I mean, he would tell us these same stories around the dinner table. And, and then the, as kids, we would talk about them in our Hebrew school and we'd talk about them with our friends because these were the prophecies, these were the things, this was the hope that we held on to. Everyone knew that God had promised. Everyone knew. I mean, think about like the Lego movie or the Matrix, right? The prophecy, like everyone knew the prophecy. And there's about 300 prophecies that were all pointing over the years, about 300 prophecies that were all pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the fact that God was gonna send someone to free them, to redeem them, to save them, both as a nation, but ultimately the world. And so we're just gonna talk about this morning, just briefly, six of the 300. Because if we talked about all 300, we'd be here till Easter. So we're just gonna talk about six, okay? So the first one, the first one, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. And that, the, that the Messiah would leave Egypt, Hosea 11.1. 1. The Messiah, the king, would be, would be raised in Nazareth, Isaiah 11.1 1 and 53.3. And in case you're like new to this whole church thing, um, Jesus, the Messiah, the king, the, the one who all these prophecies were about, he was, he was born in Bethlehem, right? Because uh, the king at the time commanded everyone that he wanted to take a census and they had to return to wherever their family lineage was from. And so because Jesus was born uh, in the lineage of David, he had to return to David's hometown, Bethlehem. So that's why he's in Bethlehem. Um, but while he was there, word got out that this king was born. And this guy, Herod, apparently became very jealous that a toddler, okay, just picture this, a toddler was gonna climb up to the throne and kick him out. 
okay? And just think about that for a minute. Like, how insane do you have to be to, to be threatened by a toddler? And so Herod, because he was insanely jealous about the throne, said, I want every single boy, two years old and under, to be killed. And so Jesus and his parents, his parents, Jesus was less than two, so he didn't really know what was going on. Um, but his parents, they were warned about Herod and what Herod was up to. And so they fled to Egypt. And so that's how Jesus got to Egypt. And then when they got word that Herod had died and that his life was no longer in danger, they were able to return home. Well, they didn't return to Bethlehem because that's not where Mary and Joseph uh, were from. They were from Nazareth. So they returned to Nazareth. So that's how Jesus was born in Bethlehem, would leave Egypt, was raised in Nazareth. And then, then if you see the, the, the rest of the prophecies uh, from Jesus' ministry, that Jesus, the Messiah, the King, he was gonna perform all kinds of incredible acts of healing, Isaiah 35, five through six. Uh, and then if you look at this next one from Malachi 4 to there'll be healing in the corner of his garments. Now, if you fact check me, you're like, is he really? Like, is he really all there? Malachi 4 to reads, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And okay, that's not what that says. That's not what I wrote up there, right? But as I was in Bible school many years ago, I sat under this, this professor who was fluent in Hebrew. I am not. Uh, not that smart, not that bright, but he was. And what he told me was that when people translated it from the original Hebrew language, it's a language that Malachi was first written in. When they translated it from Hebrew into English, they thought as they translated that it would sound more poetic, more flower, will rise with healing in his wings. But really this was a prophecy about Jesus, about the Messiah who was to come. And, and, and so as a prophecy, you would need to understand it more literally so that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of righteousness would rise with healing in the corner of his garments. And then you have this last one, Zechariah 9.9, that the Messiah would come riding in the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay, so right up until this point in the story, right before Jesus tells these guys to go and steal some random dude's donkey, uh, they, as Jesus's followers, and even the people around him, they were pretty certain that Jesus was the one. I mean, if you think about that, Malachi 4.2, right? Uh, G would, Jesus, the Messiah, would have healing in the corner of his garments. In two different places, uh, in Luke and in, in Matthew, Luke 8.43, and then in Matthew 14.6, two different times in Jesus's ministry, the crowds were pressing around him, and some people had some stuff going on. Like, there's this one person who had, like, this issue with bleeding, and there's other people that had like, you know, different kinds of sicknesses and diseases. And the crowd was beginning to become confident that this guy, Jesus, was the promised Messiah. They were beginning to be confident that he was the one who all of these prophecies were pointing to. And they thought in their mind, like, okay, I don't want to interrupt Jesus. Like, he's a busy guy. But if he's really the one, then all I have to do is touch the corner of his garments. And if he's the one, then there'll be healing in the corner of his garments. And if you read Luke 8, 43 and Matthew 14, 36, that's exactly what happened. The crowds pressed in and people thought in their minds, if I just grab the corner of his garments, I will be healed. And that's exactly what happened. So, so right, right, right up until this point in the story, I mean, right before Jesus asked these two guys to go steal some random dude's donkey, everyone who's close to Jesus are pretty confident that he is the one. And then you have this whole like Roman oppression thing. And God's pattern is to raise up a prophet or a leader 
um, that they would begin like doing their, their, their career, their political career, talking to the nation of Israel, reminding them of God's faithfulness. And then at some point, this prophet or this leader, uh, as was God's pattern, would raise up through military might and free them from whatever nation was oppressing them. And you have this Roman oppression thing that this whole nation is so incredibly sick of. And while Jesus' closest followers, they're beginning to think in their mind, like, okay, like, I, Jesus, we've been listening to you. And you keep telling us that you're up to something more, that what you're doing is better than that. But you're gonna take care of this whole Roman thing too, right? Like, they, they just wanna make sure. Like, you're gonna take care of this whole Roman thing too, right? I mean, they've seen all this, these incredible acts of healing. They know that he was born in Bethlehem, left Egypt, raised in Nazareth. They, they've seen all this stuff. They, they've seen that people have been healed by just touching the corner of his garments. So he's got to be the one, right? I mean, like freedom from Roman oppression, probably something else, but we're not quite certain of that. And then, and then Jesus, he asked them to go and get this donkey. And now they know for sure. Now they know that it's starting. Like right now, everything that they have been waiting for, everything that they have been longing for is gonna be fulfilled in this moment. It's starting and it's starting right now. Everything, all the stories that they heard around the campfires, all the things that are passed down from great grandpa to grandpa to dad, all the stories we told as kids at school, it's gonna happen right now. And we're friends with the guy who's gonna lead the charge. So when Jesus asked them to go to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives and get this random dude's donkey, these guys start telling everyone. I mean, wouldn't you have? Wouldn't you, as, as you went about your life, as you maybe went to go get this donkey, wouldn't you have told, okay, maybe you wouldn't have told the Roman soldiers because you're like hoping to get rid of those guys, right? But like, you probably would tell everyone else. And the crazy thing is, is that during this week, which marks the beginning of Passover week, uh, there was tons of extra people that were in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, uh, according, to, according to scholars, was home to about around 100,000 people. But during Passover week, there was a surge of up to 3 million people that flooded the streets of Jerusalem because Passover week was the week where the Jews, where they remembered, they, they shared what they called the remembrance meal, where, where they would remember that all those thousands of years ago, God brought them out through all kinds of miracles, brought them out uh, of slavery in Egypt. And so they would remember that through this meal, and through this celebration. But they would also, I'm confident, they would also remember the fact that God freed them from Babylonians, freed them from the Assyrians, from the Persians. And they would probably be praying that God would free them from Roman oppression. So there's this huge surge of people that are coming into Jerusalem at the exact same time that Jesus and his closest followers are telling absolutely everyone they're telling everyone that, that Jesus was gonna be riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and he is the one, the one they've been waiting for. The one is coming. Freedom was coming. Redemption was coming today. He is coming. He's coming. So I think, I think that this is why the crowds, why the kids were taking their coats off, were laying them down on the road, why they were breaking the branches off of the trees and laying them down on the road because they knew, they knew that Jesus was coming. This is why they were singing. 
This is why they were worshiping, because he is worthy, because he is worthy. And, and even though, even though I, don't, I don't think that the crowds knew exactly what Jesus was up to, I don't think that they knew what Jesus was all about. You see, see he was gonna save them from something far worse than Roman oppression. In fact, he wasn't even really gonna address Roman oppression at all. Jesus came to save us, to free us from the slavery of sin and death. Sin, it's, it's like a cancer. It infects all of us. It breaks our relationship with God. It's something that we can't fix, not on our own. We can't, we can't be good enough. We can't do enough good things. We can't give enough away. It's not something that we can fix, but God loves us so much that he wanted it to be fixed. And he knew that the only way, the only way that our relationship with, with us and God, the only way that this could be fixed was if he fixed it. And it was gonna cost him everything. So all along, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God made this incredible promise to Abraham that through Abraham and his descendants, all of the world would be blessed. God had Jesus in mind. This was God's plan all along. Every time that the prophets and the leaders would rise to the surface and remind the nation of God's promises and God's faithfulness, this is what they were writing about. They were writing about Jesus. This was God's plan all along to send Jesus, to bring about our freedom, to bring about our salvation, to bring about our redemption. And this, this is what worship is all about. This is what we're, and, and here at Grumlaw, like you, you've probably hardly ever heard us use the word worship. We, we tend to use the word singing because we know that there's people that are here every single week that for them, like they're, not, they're not ready to worship. So, and so, so maybe for some of you, it's, it's singing or it's reflecting on what was said, reflecting on what's been going on in your, in your life this week. And that's okay. We wanna create space where everyone feels encouraged and welcome here. But for others of us, we, we worship. We, we express the awesomeness, the greatness of God and all that he's done in our lives. So for some of us, this time of singing is just that. It's just singing and that's okay. But for others of us, we wanna express what's in our heart. We wanna worship. We wanna proclaim the greatness of God, the awesomeness of God. So why, why do you worship? I, I know for me, I know for me, there's been times in my life where, where like I've expected, I've prayed for, uh, for God to do something. Like I've even started worshiping him because it looks like that's happening. But then, but then I look back a week later, a month later, a year later, and like God was up to something so different. And, and for me, for me, this is most evidence uh, just, just less than a year ago, but 10 months ago, uh, we moved from Denver back to Michigan. And so for the year before that, uh, my wife, Laura, and I, and we got our kids involved, we were praying like crazy that God would open the door for us to be able to move back here to be near family. And, and we became so thoroughly convinced that this was what God was, he was answering all these prayers. Uh, I, I had talked to my boss, my supervisor, he'd give me the green light that I could work remotely. And it looked like God was answering all these prayers and we were worshiping him for it. And then literally like weeks before, we were ready to move. I got a brand new supervisor and he pulled the rug out from under us. And he said, no, if you wanna keep this job, 
you got to stay here. And so in that moment, we had a choice. I mean, do we panic and stay or do we trust God and go? And I tell you what, looking back over the last 10 months of, of watching God show up and show off in such incredible ways, like we as a family have been able to worship God in more incredible ways because God's ways are always better. It is way better than, than if we would have seen things happen the way we had originally planned. So why do I worship? I worship because I know, I know that he wants, that God wants what's best for me. Why, why do I worship? Because I know that he is good and that God always pursues the greatest good. I worship because I know that I can trust him regardless of my circumstances. I know that I can trust him. I, I worship because he saved me. He freed me. He redeemed me. I worship because I know that without Jesus, I would get exactly what I deserve. All the bad things, all the wrong things I've done, all the sin, I get exactly what I deserve. Eternal separation from God in hell. I worship because I know that he sees the bigger picture. I worship because I know that he loves me. I worship because I know that he has a plan for me. I worship because he is worthy. He's 100% worthy of my worship. He's 100% worthy of my life and my devotion. He is 100% worthy of my trust. So why, why do you worship?